And our sermon passage this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. Hear the word of the Lord. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and he struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven. We give you thanks for your word, which is alive, your word which feeds us, your people. I pray that we would feed well, feast well on your word this morning, that we would be encouraged and challenged, and that we would be uh, built up in you as we meditate on on your great truths. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. You know, sometimes, you know, as a, as a parent, you end up having to watch kids' movies that aren't always very great. Uh, and there was one movie that I was pretty skeptical about. It's these new Garfield movies. You know, I grew up with Garfield the cartoon. It's pretty good. But you see these live action things like that can't be very good. But it turns out the movies are actually pretty funny. I don't know if they're good, but, you know, they're enjoyable enough. And there's this one scene in one of these movies where, you know, Garfield the cat uh, finds himself in London in this hotel room. And uh, he goes into the bathroom and he sees a bidet and he thinks, oh man, that's like for me to clean myself. And so he hops up in it and he's kind of rolling around in it. And of course, that's not what a bidet bidet is for. If you don't know what that's for, you can look it up another time. Um, uh, Not now though, I'm watching you. but, you know, but, but in this, there's this kind of principle that if you don't know the purpose of a thing, it's hard to use that thing well. And instead, for Garfield, instead of cleaning himself, he ended up making himself more dirty than he was before. And this is at least an aspect of what Jesus is drawing out this morning. He gives us, as he gives us scathing judgment to the leaders of the time. This is the same group that he was talking to last week, which is the, the Sanhedrin, which is the, the highest authority for Jewish people in the land and uh, because they have actually forgotten what they're there for. They've forgotten what their, what their role is. They think that they're the supreme authority over all things. And so as, as Jesus last week was challenged in, in, in his authority, and this passage before us, now he's kind of turning the tables on them, challenging them 
and their authority. Where, where does your authority come from, mighty Sanhedrin? Who, who are you in this story? And he tells this parable to kind of draw out their history, to remind them and to rebuke them that they have forgotten what they're for. And this is something I think that is good for us too as a church, not to forget who we are and what we're here for, lest we become like the, the tenants in this story. And so there's just two things that I want to draw out for us this morning. And these two things are going to be more teachy than preachy at the beginning, because there's a lot of you know, biblical theology we got to do this morning, which is looking at the whole of the Bible to see and understand exactly what Jesus is saying. And so the, the two things we're going to draw out are, are this, the, the purpose and history of Israel and the history and purpose of the church. So first, the, the purpose and the history of, of, of Israel. And so Jesus begins this parable by actually telling us the story of Israel, reminding us of, of her purpose. Here in verse one, he says, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. You know, for us, this idea of vineyard might seem a little bit random. It's, I guess it's just about this gardening metaphor. But for the people here, it's not random at all. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. And I mean, at the end of the story, right, they actually understand that he's speaking against them. So they, they know what he's doing because he's, he's actually talking about their, their history. Right? Throughout the Old Testament, one of the metaphors that's used for Israel is that of a vineyard. And the vineyard is this metaphor for God's relationship with his people, right? God, the, the great vine dresser of his vineyard. And uh, there are many examples of this throughout the Old Testament. One that I want to read to you comes from Psalm 80, verses 8 through 9. It says this, you brought a vine, right, a vineyard, out of Egypt and drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. Of course, this is talking about God's relationship with his people, right? How God took the people, the vine, out of Egypt and planted them and made them fruitful in the land. Well, what land is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the land that was promised to Abraham and his descendants, right? Abraham, the, the man that, that when God made a covenant with him, he said, you're blessed to be a blessing to all the families of the, of the earth. That was his purpose. And in Genesis 17... Uh, in, in one of the instances where, where Abraham meets with God, this is what it says in, in Genesis 17, 6 through 8. God says this to him, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between uh, me and you and your offspring after you throughout the, their generation for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you, and I will give to you your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So why am, I, why am I bringing this all up? Because this is the history that Jesus is alluding to in just this one verse uh, in this parable. The vineyard is the covenant that God has made between himself and his people, right? The people were given land, they were given a blessing, they were given a heritage of children that would outnumber the stars in the heavens. They were supposed to use those things, not just for their own benefit, right? But for the benefit of the world. They were supposed to expand their borders until they covered the world. And so when God chose Abraham, it wasn't to keep the blessings with one people, but he chose Abraham and his people to be his representatives on the earth so that the whole earth would be covered, so all people would be God's people. 
And this is what was planted in the vineyard. And this is God planting his people in the world. This is covenant language here, which is to say he's speaking about the relationship between God and his people. And in this covenant relationship here, we see that there's a fence that he built and he dug a pit for a wine press and and built a a tower. This language should make you think of of the garden, right? The fence speaks of protection, like God protects his people. This, This watchtower, he watches over his people. God protects his covenant, he keeps it. It speaks of ownership. And you see this, that it's, it's fruitful. Uh, God is the great covenant keeper. He, he protects it. He cultivates it. He makes it fruitful so that it produces great wine. And he invites us into it to work it and to enjoy it. And ultimately, the Bible is a story about the God who covenants with his people, the God who pursues relationship with his people. He brings them into himself that he can bring the world into relationship with them. And so the tenants, obviously, then represent Israel. And not just Israel, but specifically the leaders of Israel. And their role as tenants was actually to to keep it, to make it fruitful, to expand it until it covered the planet. This was their purpose. Uh, In this one line, we're supposed to see God's covenant relationship with his people and their purpose to expand his kingdom all over the earth. And this is where we move to their their history as a people. Because what did they do with this great blessing? Did they actually do what they were supposed to do? Well, we see in verse 2 through 3. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So, no, they did not do what they were supposed to do. Right? Instead of sharing the fruit, being fruitful, uh, they beat and uh, sent him away empty-handed. So they got, they got greedy, right? They got happy and fat off the land and they wouldn't let it go. Instead of participating in this relationship with this good and gracious owner, uh, they beat his servants. And this word for servant here is actually the word for slave. So what's this about? Well, in the Old Testament, uh, the, the prophets are actually called servants or slaves of the Lord. So these servants here are, uh, are allusion to the prophets that God would send. You know, one of these instances where we see this is in Amos 3, Uh, It says this, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. So the servants in our our parable are are an allusion to the prophets of God. And what do the prophets do? Well, they bring God's word to the people. That's why they say, thus saith the Lord. God would send them to his people when they were behaving poorly. They needed to be reminded who they were and, and how they were to act, to live as a distinct people. God would send prophets as mouthpieces to remind them, saying, come back to me. And how did Israel treat these prophets? Well, for the most part, they did not treat them very well. Uh, you know, Elijah, the great, who was revered at this time uh, of, of the New Testament, well, in his life, he actually spent much of his life on the run, in the wilderness, running for his life. Um, you know, Ezekiel, another great one, was seen as crazy in his day. He was eating food cooked over dung, and, you know, and there's actually traditions among Jewish people that these, a lot of these prophets were actually martyred. And so Jesus is, is telling them their history. They, this is how they treated God's prophets. They didn't listen to them. They preferred to go their own way. So they beat God's servants and sent them on the run. And so the, the more God's prophets spoke, it's actually the more hard-hearted they became, dedicated to their idol worship, d- dedicated to their autonomy. And then we see it gets worse in verse 4. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, 
and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. They were so hard-hearted as a people that they killed and beat and put to shame God's prophets. Right? They would rather kill them than, than listen to God. And you know, the, the burden of the weight of this guilt is on the leaders. They were ultimately responsible. This is an, an indictment on them saying, listen, you sanctioned this. This is your doing. This is what you have done. Of course, the, the flip side of this is the, the owner, God, who is steadfast. He keeps on sending servant after servant after servant to these people. Uh, despite the fact that they're being beaten, despite the fact that they're being murdered, how would you like to be one of his servants, right? It's like, no, I'm good. You know, I'm, you send, send the next guy. Um, but this is how God is. He's steadfast, abounding in love, uh, sending messenger after messenger. Long-suffering is one of the words that, God, that the Old Testament uses to talk about God. Constantly pursuing his people until the point of he's got no other messengers left. And it says he sends a messenger after messenger until only his beloved son remains. Even though the people have acted so poorly, even though the people have ignored their purpose, he still doesn't withhold his son because he has not forgotten his purpose. We see this here in, in verse 6. It says, he still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Right? Surely my son, uh, the hard-hearted will, will soften at the sight of my son whom I love. And the implication here is that he's the last represented, the last of the prophets, his only son. And in verse 7 and 8, we find out what happens. But those tenants said to one another, this is, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What a wild scene. That they thought that killing the son would have them actually be able to inherit this. Uh, in their greed, in their hard-heartedness, they kill even the son, thinking that the land would be theirs. That they wouldn't have any owner but themselves. They assumed that this was the path for their freedom. The, you know, the sad part about this story is that God had actually already given them the land. It was already theirs, but their greed blinded them. Uh, they, did, they didn't understand what they were there for. And ultimately, this is the, the grave danger when we forget what we're here for. It eventually leads you to the place where you would rather murder God's son than listen to him. And you would think that this parable might be the kind of thing that's like water to the face that kind of snaps you out of your craziness and, and kind of makes you think, oh, Maybe that's not a good thing that we're doing this and acting like this. You know, it's kind of like, remember David in, in the Old Testament when he was doing evil things and the prophet Nathan came and tells him this parable and says, you were the man and David immediately repents and then pens Psalm 51. You kind of wonder, could this be one of those kind of moments? But it's not. Uh, what do they do in, in verse 12 instead at, at, the, at the end? It says, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So they left him and went away. So rather than like wake up and listen, they instead just plot to murder the man. Um, they knew it was about them. They, they perceived it was about them, how, how, how good of them to perceive that. And, you know, and now they're just more angry than ever, more hard-hearted than ever. And again, it points out this fact that they're afraid of the crowd. Right? This mighty uh, people is afraid of the crowd and so they, they have to find a different way to conspire against him. 
And they have to find an inside man to help them so the crowd can't get in the way of their plots. And, and ultimately, when you forget what your purpose is, we see here is that it actually ends in judgment for you. God's word both softens and hardens hearts. And here, it hardens their hearts to the place of judgment. Back in verse 9, we see, we see this. Uh, what will the owner of the vineyard do? How will the owner react to this? What, what verdict will he give? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. It's a pretty harsh statement, actually. One of those things you just kind of read over, but then you kind of look at it and it's like, no, he's going to destroy these tenants, whoever they are. God is going to destroy them, who instead of fulfilling their part of the covenant, blessing the world, have hoarded blessings for themselves. And to the people listening to this part, I think they would have been a little bit shocked by this. Because isn't God the faithful covenant keeper? Right? Isn't he the steadfast one who pursues his people even when they do dumb things? Uh, wouldn't this be God actually acting unfaithful towards his people? Of course not. We know God is faithful. And what you see here is he's actually not destroying the vineyard. Right? He's not destroying the covenant promises he has made. He, he has actually said, as he said earlier in Mark 11 that, that Ian preached on, that he's actually just bringing down the temple. He's actually bringing down Israel's leaders but the promise to Israel will be fulfilled, just not the way they thought it was going to be. It's not through this physical temple, but through a flesh and blood temple for all who believe on Christ are called living stones. It's not through an ethnic Israel, but through a spiritual Israel. All who have faith, the faith of, of, of Abraham are sons and daughters of Abraham. And this is what we see here as we find this passage actually laced with the, the history and purpose of the church, which is the second thing I want to point out, is that the history and purpose of the church. We see this actually at the second half of verse 9, where it says that he will give the vineyard to others. Well, the others is, is us, right? It, this is our history, right? The Gentiles, the church, his vineyard or his, his covenant relationship is now shared with you and I. Uh, and this is not a change to the plan, but this is actually always was his plan. Right? Blessed to be a blessing to all nations. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this expectation that the light of the gospel would shine everywhere in the world. In Isaiah 49, 6, it says this. It says, I will make you, speaking of Israel, as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The end of the earth was always the plan, right? The restoration of Israel would mean the restoration of the world that from this one people, the whole world might experience salvation. And even though God's people for, forget their role, uh, even though they forgot their purpose, even though they stopped being a light to the nations, God did not forget his role. He will finish the work he started. He will be faithful to his covenant promises. Even if that means he needs to graft uh, in a, a Gentile people. He will graft all his children into his people. And this becomes the root of our history too. And now all who have faith in Christ are heirs of Abraham. This is what Galatians 3 says about this. It says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. All of us are now children of Abraham. This is your family tree without distinction. I am just as much a son of Abraham as Isaac and Jacob are. This is wild truth here. Heirs of the covenant promise of Abraham are those, are, are those for all those who share his faith. It's not about sharing his blood, but we are the wild branch who has been grafted in, as Romans 11 puts it. We are now a, a new people 
who share new blood that is the blood of Christ, which was shed to form us, to graft us in. So this shared history with Israel actually gives us our purpose as well, because we have the same purpose. We're called to be stewards of this covenant, of this relationship. We're, the church is called a city on a hill, right? It, it's, a, it's a light that's not meant to be covered, right? Hide it under, uh, what is it, uh, something? Oh, no, I'm going to let it shine. Uh, I should probably know that song, but, you know, whatever. Um, uh, but we're supposed to shine brightly in the darkness, not to hide it. We're not meant to hoard our blessings, but to be an outpost of the kingdom wherever we find ourselves, to expand its borders until all hear and believe. So our purpose is actually no different than the purpose of Israel. We're called to steward the vineyard, steward the promises of God, proclaiming them that all might come and participate them. This is our history and our purpose. It's a profound thing that's happening here that Jesus is alluding to. There's also here a warning. Like lest we become like our forefathers, lest we do the same things that they did, in, in our grafting in, there's a warning. Romans eleven seventeen actually says it like this. He says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. He's saying, listen, it's God who supports you and holds you all together. Do not be arrogant thinking that the church is the ends. It's a means to an ends of bringing God's kingdom to bear on the entire earth. The mission we're called to is, is not our own. We're not the source of it. God is. Our purpose is to help his kingdom expand, not our kingdom. So he's saying, let us not be like those who have gone before us, right? If the natural branch can lose sight of its purpose, how can we expect to be any better as, as we're the wild shoot that's grafted into this story? Which then kind of begs the question for us, well, that's a good question. How, how can we ex expect to be any different? How can we be any better, especially when we've proven otherwise throughout our history? Well, the answer actually isn't because we are better. Believe it or not, we aren't any better than these people here. But the one thing that is better for us is our foundation. We see this here in verse 10. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. But Jesus is quoting here is Psalm 118. And what's particularly unique about this psalm is it's in a group of uh, collection of psalms called the Hallel Psalms. And these would have been the psalms that they would have been reading during Passover week. And this is like Tuesday or Wednesday of Passover week. And so these are the psalms that they would have been singing and meditating on that week. It would have been fresh on their mind. And he is quoting it and alluding to himself in it. He's saying, I am the cornerstone of the kingdom. I am the one that you are rejecting. I am the cornerstone of the covenant promises. I'm the linchpin that holds it all together and makes way for both Jew and Gentile. You reject me, but you cannot stop me. This is our profound hope, that Jesus is building his kingdom. He is the stronger foundation, and even his rejection and his own death cannot stop it because God is faithful. He will restore his people. And even when we turn and we forget his purposes, even when we take the blessings of God and hoard them, even when we betray God's covenant with us, even when the church becomes lifeless and nominal in its faith, promoting evil, God will restore even that until the whole earth is filled with his glory. 
God does not fail in his work, which means that we cannot fail in ours if we're united to him. It's a profound hope for us. So in this, there's both that warning and promise, right? Don't presume upon God and his promises. Remember what he has called you to, to be living stones. First Peter 2 says it like this. It says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by, by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's this beautiful truth that Jesus is our foundation, sure and strong, and we are his living temple built on him, stone by stone. We are the bricks that make up the temple, Jew and Gentile alike, a better temple, an eternal temple, a temple that can't be torn down because it's alive in Christ who is alive. Right? This is what God is building. He's building this glorious cosmic kingdom that not even our failures can stop. He will accomplish this. And the proof for this is Christ. As death couldn't stop Jesus, so our sin can't stop God from expanding his kingdom. So the call for us is to rest in his promises. Don't be arrogant like the leaders of, of Israel, thinking they could do it on their own. We cannot do anything on our own. But because Christ is our foundation, this should give us great hope. Not just in the work that, that God is doing in our world, but the work that he's even doing in your own life. Sometimes there's those times where it feels like God's work has stopped, where it feels like you're lifeless, where you don't feel like a, a living stone. God will not abandon you. He will see his work to the end. Sometimes it's slow, painfully slow. Uh, you know, just like you, you don't know uh, how a, a turtle gets from one, one place to another, and then all of a sudden they're there. So God's work in your life, you don't always know how you get from one place to another, but he does that work. It is sure and it is steady. Jesus is the one foundation that can't be broken. It, it never cracks. You and I crack all the time. We struggle. We forget our purpose, our history, but praise be to God, he never forgets his. He never forgets the work he is doing. You are alive as you're united to him, and he holds you, and he keeps you, and he guards you, and he protects you, and he will never let you go. And he's building you up into his kingdom on this earth, that you can be a light into the darkness, that you are blessed to be a blessing to all those around you. May this great truth spur you to faithfulness. May it strengthen you that you are a living stone bringing warmth and light of the kingdom wherever you go. Pray with me. Gracious Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the promises that are in your scriptures, your promises that not even our disobedience can break, that, that nothing we can do can break them because they're held and kept by you and by you alone. As we consider that deep truth, May that spur us to faithfulness. May that spur us to, to live out lives as living stones here on earth. That we would be receptive to your word, to your rebuke, to your critique. That you unite us together through Christ, our great foundation. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.